0: So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 and down through verse 5. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this week I was thinking about this passage in and, and a certain time, uh, a certain circumstance came to mind that happened to me years ago when I was uh, pastoring a little church in West Virginia in a little town that nobody's ever heard of. It's funny, last week we stopped over at uh, Jenny's Market after church on Sunday and there was somebody there and, and Mike said to this person, hey, aren't you from West Virginia? And they said, we sure are, we're just passing through. She said, where are you from? And, and she mentioned a couple of towns and I said, you're not from Beelington, are you? And she said, we are. And that little town where nobody knows about, we ran into somebody here at Jenny's Market just passing through. I couldn't believe that. But we lived in this little tiny town, and we lived up on a hill, and below us was the main road. There was just one big road that, that ran through town. And I was up there uh, one night. And I don't know where Denise was. I don't know where the kids were. I know they were in the house, but I don't know why I was sitting in the living room all by myself, nobody was around, I was watching TV, I don't know what I was watching, but suddenly, from behind me, I just heard faintly the screams of a woman, screaming for help. Help me! Help me! And at first I thought, am I hearing things? Am I hearing things? But then as I I, I turned the TV down, I heard it more clearly, help me! Help me, somebody's going to kill me! They're going to kill me. Help me. So I ran out on my front porch and it was dark and there's just a few lights down there on the road and I could see her running down the middle of the road screaming, help me. Help me. They're going to kill me. And I'll save you the long story. I don't know whatever happened to the lady. I tried to get her help. But I just remember thinking after that was all over that you can really tell From the tone of somebody's voice when something's truly serious. Have you ever had your kids cry out to you in a way that you knew immediately that this tone was different? That something about this was different? And something that happened was serious? And have you ever heard somebody, your your spouse, call you on the phone and you can tell by the tone of their voice that what they're about to say is deadly serious? And really, that's where we come to in this passage. And what Paul's going to do here is he's going to talk to us about something that's deadly serious. And you can tell immediately by the tone of his voice that he means for us to take it seriously. And I'm going to walk you through that. But I want you to understand that this is really sort of begins and is born out of what's already come in chapter 1. Remember, when Paul wrote this letter... There were no chapter divisions. There were no verses or anything like that. He just wrote the letter to the people at Corinth. And he's sort of continuing the thought that we had at the end of chapter 1 where he talks about the truth that God uses all sorts of unlikely people. You remember that? He said that God uses the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong. And God uses the the things of this this world that are foolish to shame the things that are wise. And he said God uses the things that are nothing uh, to shame the things that the world sees as everything. And we remember that at the end of it, Paul says that God does this for one specific reason. The reason that God uses most of the time foolish people like you and me is because when God does something, there could be no mistake about it. It was God who did it. And so Paul's just sort of coming on the heels of that, and he's saying now because of that, he wants them to understand that when he came to them, he came to them in that same way. That he came to them not as being somebody who's lofty or high up or in the, in the eyes of the world, somebody who's being respected. He says, when I came to you, I came to you simply. And listen to what he says. He says, I, I came to you, brothers, not, not proclaiming, or did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I wasn't the greatest speaker in the world. In fact, tradition tells us that it was Apollos that was the great speaker, the one that they were dividing over in the church. That He was the great preacher. He said, I didn't come to you like that, but I came to you. I decided to to just come to you simply. Verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He says, the power of the message that He preached to them was in the message and not the man. That ought to give us confidence, by the way. Listen, if you're sitting here today and you you think to yourself, like, you don't have a lot to offer, you've never really been a person who shares your faith a lot, you get really crazy nervous when it comes time to talk about your faith, I just want you to know and be reassured that the power is in the message, not in you. So just go for it. That's what Paul's saying. He just went for but it's what what comes next that really grabs my attention look at verse two again and then into verse three he says I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified then in verse three and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling that really sticks out to me When I read that, that really sticks out to me because that doesn't sound like Paul to me. I mean, what do we think of when we think of the Apostle Paul? We don't don't think of a guy who's, who's running around with shaking hands and a quaking voice and sweat rolling down his brow every time he shares the gospel. That's not the kind of guy we think about. We don't think about a guy who's scared to speak up for Christ. I mean, Paul, when I think of Paul, I think of a guy who's bold who's confident. I think of Paul. I think of a guy who says that he's willing to die. It would be gain to him if he just had the opportunity to share Christ. He'll lose his life for the sake of the gospel. I don't think of a guy who's weak and fearful and trembling. So then what does it mean when he says that he came to them in weakness and in fear and much trembling? I think one of the ways that we answer that is just to look at the other places where Paul uses that kind of language. Just hang with me here. For a moment, I don't have any slides for you, so just take these down notes. Don't try to go there because I'm going to just go move on from them quickly. But for instance, in Second Corinthians chapter seven, Paul writing to the same church another time uh, talks to them about when they received Titus with his letter, and he says, "And his affection for you in 2 Corinthians seven fifteen, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling." So he describes the way that they would have received his messenger with fear and with trembling. And then Ephesians chapter five or chapter six, excuse me, verse five. He's talking to slaves and he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So he wants them to to know that there's some gravity to this. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 he says, therefore my beloved as you've always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he uses this several times in the New Testament this idea of fear and trembling and when he does use this I want you to understand that what he's not saying is that you should come with shaky hands or, or, or shaking out of your boots. He's not talking about being afraid. What he's really saying here is that the thing that's being addressed is of such a serious nature that the one who's addressing it does so as if he's trembling in fear. You ever had that experience? I'll tell you, in years of ministry, I've had the unfortunate experience of having to be the person to go and relay to somebody that their loved one has died. I remember the first time it happened, and it was a man that I dearly loved, and he had a grandson who was the apple of his eye. His grandson was serving his third tour in Iraq. And I'll never forget getting the call his family was here in Maryland. We were in West Virginia. And we got a call that night and said, his grandson had been killed in Iraq. We need you to go and tell him that he's dead. I want to tell you something. When I stood on his doorstep that night, and I rang the doorbell, and I saw him coming, when I spoke those words, I spoke them in fear and tremor. You understand? It's about the gravity of it. I wasn't scared. I wasn't afraid, but the gravity of it, I remember on Easter Sunday, the day after Alexandria was born, I had just gotten to the hospital, and I was with Denise, and we were sitting in the room, and just about the time I took my jacket off, I got a phone call that said one of the most prominent members in our church, and one of the most prominent members in our entire community had been in a car accident, nobody knew where they had taken him or what his condition was, and they said, could you find out? So I began to make some calls, and I eventually found out that they had taken him to Prince George's Hospital, and so I got in the car, drove to Prince George's Hospital, got there, told them who I was there to see. They took me upstairs without saying a word. One of the nurses ushered me into the room where there he was on a table, dead. And I stood in there all alone with him. And then I went out and they sat me in a little room by myself. And I began to understand that I had beat the family there. And his wife, who was in the car with him, was there also. And she was almost other than a couple bumps and bruises, almost completely fine. And so they informed me that I was going to have to go in with the doctor to tell her that her husband of 50 years was gone. And I want to tell you, when I did that, it was with fear and trembling. That's the idea here that Paul's saying, that this thing is so serious. This thing is so important. That when he speaks about the gospel, when he speaks about the message of Christ crucified and the reconciliation of men to God, that it's so serious that when he speaks the words, it's as if he does so in fear and with much trembling. This is the weightiest thing that you could ever deal with, the reconciliation of men to God. Paul was serious about this. And I, I wrote this down just this morning in my notes. I want to ask you the question, are you serious about your faith? I mean, Paul was deadly serious about it. He says, when I came to you, I just spoke about Christ and Him crucified, and I did it with fear and trembling. I think there's some reasons why he was so serious about his faith and the message that he preached. And so just hang on with me as I walk through these and then off to Mother's Day lunch you go. First of all, Paul approached the gospel with fear and trembling because he understood that he was involved in the things of God. He was involved in the things of God. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. He says, My speech, my message, we're not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says that this message comes to you, it's, it's clothed in the power of God. This is God's message. The message of the Gospel, the preaching of the Gospel, the receiving of the Gospel, all of these things are things that God is involved in. And Paul had an understanding, an understanding of that. And there was a sense, I think, for Paul in his writings and in his example, there was a sense of reverent awe about the things of God. Now, you guys are so quiet this morning. I hope I haven't lost you already, but maybe I'll lose you now with this. I think this is an appropriate time to say that I believe that one of the biggest problems in Western Christianity and in our churches is that we seem to have lost a sense of reverence and awe for God. I mean, I really believe that. I, I've only been in ministry for 15 years. I mean, short time, short time. And the world is rapidly changing. I mean, rapidly changing. I'm, I'm, I'm much more like my grandparents than my children are like me. I mean, the world is just changing so fast. And the church is changing so fast. And one of the things that I've noticed is that it seems like that we've lost our sense of reverence for the things of God. I I really believe that. I just take, for instance, this is easy, low-hanging fruit, but I'm taking it. Take the weekly worship gathering of a church. Not just our church, our church included, but any church. And we've become so casual in our approach to worship. And I'm talking about dress, the way you dress. I think that that's not even that big of an issue. I think that we dress more as a reflection of our culture than we do in what's appropriate to church. I think that those of you who remember days when you uh, dressed up more in church, you lived in a time where people dressed up more. and That's just a reflection of our culture. So I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the sense of the, the general casual attitude about the things of God that we encounter when we come to church. The, the, the worship service of a church rarely seems like a sacred place anymore. I think that some of the most popular preachers, and maybe I know this because I spend time watching other preachers and paying attention to who's popular, and and who's sort of on the rise, and some of the most popular preachers, I don't even want to say their names because I don't want you to ever go look them up, because they're some of the most irreverent people that you'll ever see, and it seems like the people who are rising now in the church are the ones who push the envelope right to the edge, and sometimes are on the edge of even being profane in the pulpit. I watched the, the service of a church launch in South Carolina of a man who had been taken out of ministry and recently was restored to ministry. And thousands of people showed up to the church launch. And in his message, he joked about his sex life and even cursed in the pulpit. Irreverence. Here's one that you're going to not like, but that's just wear this one. Most of us, or many of us, not most of us, but many of us, show up late for worship or inconsistently to worship. It's become casual. In the book of Malachi, the people of Israel had become casual worshipers. You should spend some time, just read the book of Malachi as God speaks to His people about the way that they've approached Him in worship. And they had begun to feel like and say things like that it was a burden to go to worship. Like it was a heavy thing for them to show up. And, and they were going through the motions, but they were just going through the motions. And they had become lazy and they had become routine and they had become casual. And God speaks to them in Malachi chapter 1 and says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am the father, where is my honor? And if I'm the master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. And yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? In verse 7 he says, you offered defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? And by saying the Lord's table is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? You hear what he's saying there? When you bring something that's less than the best, when you take it lightly, isn't this evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is this not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? You know, I've had the opportunity over the years to attend some special events outside of the church for important people. And I find that when we're in the presence of congressmen and senators and cabinet members of the president, that we oftentimes conduct ourselves with more reverence than when we're in the presence of a living God. So I think that Paul approaches this with fear and trembling because he knows we're dealing with the things of God. These are the very things, according to Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, that have occupied the consciousness of the Godhead since before there ever was an earth, before there ever was a star in the sky, before the sun was ever put in its place, before we ever hear the words, let there be light, God was occupied with the redemption of his people. These are the things of God. These are the things of God. And Paul approached it seriously. And I think secondly that Paul approached the gospel with fear and trembling because he knew that there would be people who rejected the message. I think Paul understood that. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27, and then in verse 31, the Bible says this. It says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the average adversaries. And then the writer says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I know it's not popular to talk about hell anymore. I get that. It's not fun to talk about hell. As a preacher, it's not fun to talk about the truth that some people will reject the message of the gospel and the message of the cross, and they will certainly go to hell. I don't take any pleasure in that, but the truth is unavoidable, isn't it? It's, it's taught if a person rejects the message of the cross, they will receive the full and just wrath of God in hell. And I want you also to know and understand that when we speak about hell, we're not talking about the cruel invention of men that's meant to scare people straight. That's not what hell is. If you're denying the existence of hell, then you've got a problem with Jesus because almost all of the teaching that we have in the Bible on the subject of hell comes directly from Jesus. Did you realize that? Jesus did not want people to go and experience hell. The Bible describes it as a place of outer darkness, as a lake of fire, as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from the blessings of God. It describes it as a place of torment where the worm never dies. It's a place of eternal punishment. And I believe that each time Paul shared the gospel, he knew that there would be people who would reject the gospel and for some of them it would be their last chance. You know, some of you will hear the gospel today that that God is holy, that He is perfect in every way, That He created us and created us to live for Him and in fellowship with Him. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate sin. Because He's a perfect judge, He cannot tolerate it. And so when we've fallen into sin, and the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then that makes each one of us by nature, the Bible says, by our very nature, children of wrath. We deserve the just wrath of God. I don't know how to say it more plainly than this. Every single one of us deserves to go to hell. But God loved the world. And he gave his own son. He sent his son to live for us, perfectly fulfilling the law, and then to die for us as a substitute on the cross. And everybody who believes in him, the Bible says that our sin is credited to him, and then his righteousness is credited to us, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved by God and from God. That's the gospel. And some of you today will hear that message and you'll reject it. And I want you to know that that breaks my heart because some of you, for some of you, it could be your last day. I'm not trying to scare you. Well, maybe I am trying to scare you. I mean, I don't mean it to be a scare tactic, but it's just true. You know that man that I mentioned earlier that I was in the hospital with standing beside a metal table where he was dead with tubes sticking out of him so the bodily fluids would leak out and he wouldn't swell up. Just before I left church, he was the last person I talked to. And he told me on that Easter Sunday that he and his wife were going over to St. Mary's County to a place where they loved to eat fried chicken. And a few minutes later, as he passed through the intersection at New Market on Route 6 in St. Mary's County, A young man responding to a call at a firehouse blew through the light and hit him square in the driver's door of his car and killed him. I want you to know that every single person in this room could meet the same exact fate. When I left the hospital that night on the way back to Denise, I pulled over on the side of the road. I was scared to drive. I don't know if I even told Denise that ever. I was so shook up by the whole thing. He had just been there, just talking to me, and like that, he was gone. And for some of you, this could be the last chance to ever respond to the gospel. With fear and trembling, Paul shared the gospel. And lastly, I think that Paul approached the gospel with fear and trembling because he knew. He knew that there would be people who accepted the gospel. He knew that there would be people who would accept the gospel message and they would never be the same. You know, I've never been able to get over the power of the gospel to change lives. Sometimes Denise and I will will think about the people that we've known along the way in in our different churches and different places where where we've been and people that we've seen be radically transformed by the gospel. You know that the power of the cross can radically transform your life. Do you know that? I mean, I love that truth. I love seeing people change forever. I, I think about uh, people I've known who were addicts, who struggled with addiction, and who, who overcame their addiction because they realized that God had a different plan for them in the cross. Radically transformed their life. I, I think of, of people in my life who were living ways that nobody ever imagined that they could ever come to faith in Christ. And they've been radically changed. Listen, I'll call him out because I know he doesn't mind. When Pastor Nick started coming to my church in Southern Maryland, there were people in my church who said, we don't want people like him in our church based on the things that he had been involved in. But God got a hold of his life and radically transformed his life and his marriage and his children. The gospel can do that. The gospel can do that for you if you will submit to the message of the cross. And I'm not telling you that suddenly everything becomes sunshine and rainbows. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's not true. But I'll tell you what does happen. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you and begins to change you. And you live a different way and you live with a different hope and you live looking towards eternity without fear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The message of the cross transforms life. There's nothing greater or more serious than the message of the cross. A couple of months ago, you know, we have little rituals in our home. How many of you have bedtime rituals with your kids? None of you? A couple of you? Maybe we're just the only silly people. We do all kinds of silly things. It's silly time, you know. I think it's because that's how we convince our kids to go to bed you know, because it'll be fun if you go to bed. And so we do all kinds of goofy things. And and I, I don't know why, but Alex and I have this whole routine that we go through. And, and she rides on my back and I take her into the room and she's starting to get a little big for all this, but I, I spin her around and sometimes I fling her into the bed. Sometimes I fling her too hard and she hits the wall and then we have to apologize and wipe away tears and 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 then we get back to it. But we do all kinds of things. We have this routine that we go through every night. It's always silly. It's always goofy. And I say things intentionally that she says, Daddy, don't say that. Like, I mean, we just, it's totally goofy. And one night we were going through our routine and everything was silly and everything was funny and everything was nonsense. And she looked up at me and she said, Daddy, I want to ask you something. She said, I'm thinking that maybe I want to accept Jesus as my Savior. And in a moment, I mean in an instant, it went from a moment of silly goofiness that meant nothing for me as her father to a moment of fear and trembling. There's nothing more serious than the cross. And there's nothing more serious for you than your response to the cross. So are you taking your faith seriously?